Welcome to Soul Forum. We're delighted to have you as we attempt to kind of democratize the experience of soul. Each conversation in this second season takes you deeper into the experience of your own body, the collective body, earth body, and even the cosmic body as we explore the way soul finds expression in our time. We hope what you discover along the way helps you journey a little deeper into your own soul body. Welcome. In the last two episodes, we explored with Brian how he uses his commitment to creating art from found materials as a vehicle to inspire others to honor the greater collective body or maybe even cosmic body. In this final episode of our series with him, he shares with April the magic and commitment of an artist's path. Brian, thank you for being here with me today. I'm so I'm excited to hear your story and then, mm. you know, hear about your intention and your impressions into what is the cosmic body that we all hang out in. Yeah. So, um, you know, the artist's life is the path less traveled. So how did you, how did you get to be here? Yeah. <laughs> I, maybe the path for some artists is a linear one and how they, they always knew. Some, I know some people are like, I always knew. Um, mm-hmm. I, in high school, I was like, I'm going to be a doctor. Mm-hmm. Super interested in the human body. I still am. Um, and, uh, so, you know, I went to school down at UC San Diego and I was a pre-med. So mm. I took all those classes. I took the MCAT, all those things. But I studied um, cognitive science was my major. Mm. And human computer, human computer interaction was my specialization. Mm. And it was kind of like my uh, subconscious just being like, you know, there's, there's many paths you can take from Cogsci. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I knew I didn't want to work in a lab and I knew I was like liked people and I knew, you know, I was kind of like in HCI, I was able to work on the design of interfaces mm-hmm. and both digital and analog. And that, you know, we were actually like designing environments, which is super interesting because these things are now hap- like mm-hmm. starting to come into mm-hmm. reality. The yeah. things that we were working on in like 2000, yeah. you know? Yeah. And so that part was fascinating. And uh, I had uh, been told by my family that art was not a viable career path. <laughs> so um, you certainly weren't the first person to hear that one. <laughs> yeah. So I, uh, I was like, well, I can't be an artist or I was, you know, I just didn't believe that in myself or believe that that was doable, but it's, it was something that is just so fundamental, you know, like I had grown up uh, as a very creative person. And after school, I came back up to the Bay and worked at a usability research, I, I was a UX UI researcher, mm-hmm. um, giving designs and redesign recommendations on websites and software based on our research. This was like 
you know, 2005. Mm -hmm. So websites still didn't really work super well. (laughs) And usability was just kind of forming as a, a, Mm. you know, something important. Mm. And like, you know, these big companies, maybe they'd have a usability team. But they're building soft. They're building websites or software that you know millions of people are using, and they're not thinking about the user. Mm-hmm. So it was the the ethnography, cognitive ethnography, that is like how do people actually use things? Yeah. Um, and then design towards that mm-hmm. versus like here's how a designer or an engineer thinks of it, and then try to just get the people to work, you know, into this weird maze of like how to do an operation so did that for less than two years it was kind of like after six months i learned everything i was really interested in and then i was just like i'm just here because it's comfortable also at that time was reading a book called cradle to cradle Mm. which is it was like reading my own thoughts Mm. and um you know it was very much about changing the way that we design things to mm-hmm. think of the end of something's lifespan from the conception of the design. Mm-hmm. And that was just completely spoke to me. And you know, I was in the tech world and it was like, well, we're not doing anything quote unquote bad, but we're definitely not doing anything good. And the stuff that we're working on isn't making any changes. So the other thing is I had always worked with my hands too. Mm -hmm. So I had um, done three years of woodshop in high school Mm -hmm. and uh, learned a lot more than I even realized that I learned. Mm -hmm. And I I was like, I need to give these things a shot. I need to give my hands a shot Mm -hmm. before I like sit here because I'm, definitely not thriving Mm -hmm. in this place and so I left and I went to Alaska Mm. Um, one of my best friends who I'd done a bunch of mountaineering with in California was like dude you have to come out here and so I was going there for my two weeks of vacation but I ended up leaving my job right before I went there so once I finally got there took a couple days from Anchorage to actually land out there but Mm. I became a mountaineering guide, like kind of like junior mountaineering guide out there. I led hikes out on the glacier and um, did some fly in, fly out backcountry tours. And um, we've got this amazing, the tallest wooden structure in North America. There. It's mm. a 14 story milling processing plant for the copper mine that was there. Oh. And it's like this living piece of history. Mm-hmm. And so being out there, you know, reuse wasn't even really a term at that time. Yeah. Uh, it was just the way of life. And so, mm-hmm. you know, everything that came down the road, like there's a cost to that and there's a cost to take stuff back out. So anything that has utility is going to stick around. And metal is absolutely one of those things that, you know, everybody who lives out there has some stash of metal somewhere where they're like, oh, yeah, well, that'll get used, you know. Mm-hmm. So anyhow, then I came back and I took my first class in uh, metalwork 
uh, at the Crucible. Mm-hmm. In Oakland. Uh-huh. In Oakland, yeah. My design idea at the time, what I wanted to make was a chase lounge out of car chassis. Like I've never, I'd never worked in metal, mm-hmm. but in the cradle to cradle, like they, they coined the term circular economy in, in cradle to cradle. Basically, if you're making things out of something that is fully upcyclable and like built to go into another system or fully biodegradable, then we actually have a future. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so I was like, oh, well, I've never worked in metal, but this thing already has bends in it. So if I don't have to do the bending and they're, they're the same bend, you know, it's uniform, okay, then I can just cut and paste it back together. That's probably not too hard. Mm-hmm. You know, I went in and my instructor was awesome. He wasn't like, that's a little, might be tough for the first project. You know, he was just <laughs> like, let's learn to weld first. Right. <laughs> so I was like, okay. Mm-hmm. So I, shifted and made a couple tables that were designed from found materials. And one was a kind of end table made out of a structural Mm I-beam. And there was a older woman in the class. She was a 76 year old ex statistics professor from Cal. She was like, when you finish that, I will buy that from you. Mm. And I was like, what? You know, I hadn't, even, I wasn't even done with it. I just gave her the concept. And um, so I told her my story and she said, you know, oh, you're, this is your first project in metal. You, know, you found what you're supposed to do. And so those were those words of encouragement that were just like exactly what I needed to hear okay. when I needed to hear uh-huh, it to uh-huh. keep going. Yeah. I made that table. Then I made another one for her. Right. So because I'm like, <laughs> like you can't have original. my first project. This is like the first one. <laughs> so I kind of hid that I was learning, you know, I was learning a craft, but I was making functional art. Mm-hmm. And so I wasn't an artist. So I still like was able to do this mm-hmm. thing. In college, I had started really learning to draw. Right. Mm-hmm. Like, t- you know, I read drawing on the right side of the brain. And I was studying the brain. So then I actually, I took a year of Mandarin at school just because it's a visual pictorial mm. written language. Oh, and it actually, uh-huh. you know, requires your right brain yeah. to really to write it, but to read and write it. And but so I just- creativity workout doing that. Yeah, I just yeah. looked at it like a muscle mm-hmm. and it's like, I want more of this. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to go into the gym and flex this part of yeah. my brain as hard as I can because it, I literally was studying that at the time. Yeah, too. also, it's not easy. <laughs> yeah, no, it was not. Um, and, you know, unfortunately, I've forgotten everything except how to say, like, I, my Chinese is very bad. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that workout, right, that really served me well because I, I just continued to yeah, that's access my right brain. Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, I knew, like, I knew I wasn't going to become a doctor. I was like, I don't know what I'm going to, like, I didn't know what I was going to do. And I, it always was like this underlying thing that I wanted to be an artist. Yeah. Um, but it just took a couple of years of like, just learning my craft, you know, getting a style Mm -hmm. and like really I wanted to learn metal right I'd never worked in metal so 
I took classes at the crucibles, you know, as all these classes, all these different departments. So I, I, I went in to metal like top to bottom from learning, taking jewelry classes and learning it on the smallest scale that I mm -hmm. could, could learn. I did blacksmithing, I did foundry work, like all of these different things, as well as continuing with wood. And then I was an, I became an instructor there very quickly Mm -hmm. And, you know, I've taught there for you know, well more than a decade. I created my own art school, right? I'd talk to friends of mine. I'm like, yeah, well, I'm thinking of going back to art school. They're like, don't go back to art school. Like you're, you're doing, you're doing it yourself. Like you're in art school mm -hmm. and there are pluses and minuses to both of those things. And then not only was I at the crucible, but I was fully utilizing the amazing like community college system that we have in Oakland and the Bay Area. So I took classes through the Laney college system. I took classes in DBC and, you know, I had a painting mentor for like four and a half years mm. there. Where I took so you're just taking classes. all different kinds of art, art classes. I was taking, you know, well, so yes, I went to Burning Man. Um, I've been to Burning Man a couple of times and you know, now it's like part of my job to go to Burning Man. Uh -huh. But uh, I came back from there one year, it's 2007 or 2009, and I was out in New York for 11 days. And I think I went to eight museums in 11 days. <laughs> and I saw the Kandinsky exhibit at the Guggenheim. Mm -hmm. They had a retrospective and the Guggenheims were friends with Kandinsky. So they mm. have the largest collection of his work. Mm -hmm. And I'd never even heard of him or seen his work. Mm -hmm. Like maybe I'd heard of him, but like I saw his work and, and that was still at that time when I started out making and doing art, I was like, I don't wanna know any art history. I don't care where I fall in the spectrum of whatever someone else has decided is art. I'd, and I don't wanna be influenced. I literally just want to make stuff and in my own little bubble. Yeah. And that was an important mm -hmm. and formative time because I really was just exploring my own, like what was coming out of me. Yeah. And that was great. Yeah. But then when I saw that exhibit, I was like, oh, this guy, even though we don't even have the same medium. Yeah is speaking the same words of how I'm talking about art. And so like, I wanna know more about other people who they're doing this with art. Uh -huh. Then I looked at Kandinsky's history is really interesting because he was a full on professor. He didn't take his first art class, which was a, a figure drawing class until he was 30. Uh -huh. And like I was at a retrospective of his right. at the Guggenheim, yeah. right? Yeah. He didn't even start till he was 30. Yeah. I was like, I'm 28. If I go home and sign up for a figure drawing class right now, the next semester starts and I'll be 29. So I have one year on it. <laughs> I'm like, so it's still possible. And so I, I did that. Uh -huh. And Figure drawing was awesome, but I wanted to get into painting. Uh -huh. So 
I took one figure drawing class and then I started taking painting classes. And the, the painting instructor that I walked into his class up at Merritt, he was one of those instructors who you, like you hear them and you're just like, this is, this is my person. Mm, like mm-hmm. they're, you they're resonated just with him completely or he yeah. resonated with you. Whichever. Yeah. And it was just <laughs> like, he's teaching about life. His medium just happens to be art, mm-hmm. you know, and mm-hmm. I had had that in college with an organic chemistry professor mm-hmm. who I was like, this guy's just teaching about life. Mm-hmm. But like, mm-hmm. Ochem is his medium. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, that's the best teachers are that. And when I walked in first class, I'm like, oh, this is, he's one of these guys. And so I then took classes with him for four and a half years until he died. And uh, he was in his late 70s when Mm -hmm. I met him. But that was really where I learned art history. That was also like formative, Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. And so... um, Well, you had these nice turning points along the way where like the right person showed up to give you the validation that you needed to then take that next step. Yeah. So then when did you decide, so you said something about, well, I, I'm, I'm a craftsman. Mm. So then what happened? When did you, when did you give yourself permission to say, oh, actually I'm an army? I mean, obviously you're st- like studying it like mad, like you're living it, right? But I, it sounds like you were still calling yourself a craftsman even th- through this. Yeah, it took, it took a while. Uh, I put together and like curated my first group show in 2008 mm-hmm. and then did that again in 2009 and in that i you know i was like finally making and showing Mm -hmm. art pieces so i kind of started saying like oh maybe i guess i can call myself an artist at this point Uh but that was like two or three years into to doing all this um and i was still just the nature of how things worked right like okay i had like six jobs during that time because i i was (laughs) i was like i was a an instructor like teaching welding i was you know i was making furniture i was making jewelry uh fine art i was doing general construction a bunch then I was still working at my old job. They would hire me contractually. So I was limping along for a long time there and was like doing the starving artist thing for seven years. And then you're like, no, no, is this sustainable? <laughs> well, it wasn't sustainable. Right. And I was just kind of at the end of my rope. I wasn't in a good place. I was very much like losing hope in the world mm-hmm. and in myself mm-hmm. um, because I was doing what I was called to do, right? Right. I was like, I know that this is what I'm supposed to do. Mm-hmm. What everybody says is if you do what you love, then mm-hmm. it's gonna work out. <laughs> and you're like, well, I'm doing all that. Yeah. And it's not working out. Yeah. And so, you know, and I'm actively trying to not be a jerk, you know? 
and so I'm like, I feel like I'm a good person and I'm like doing what I love. Like, why isn't anything working? Mm -hmm. And around that time, I actually uh, was introduced to uh, the Buddhist practice that I have, Mm -hmm. which I chant Nam-myoho-renge-kyo in the morning and the evening. And so when I connected with that Buddhist practice, one of the first things that they said that stuck with me was like, if you think the answers or the problems lie outside of yourself, you'll inherently be let down because both exist right here. Mm-hmm. And it's up to you. I was realizing I don't have any plan. Mm-hmm. You know, and I, my relationship with my family was not good. And there was just so much anger mm-hmm. because they'd ask me, like, so what's your plan? You know, and I'd be like, fuck. I'm like, look, I'm an because I, you know, I had left a stable career path, yeah. right, which was mm-hmm. killing me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I was like, the plan is I'm an artist. I'm making art. You're seeing the plan right in front of you. But the reality was I didn't have a plan. And, and actually, as I chanted, what I learned was mm-hmm. the plan that I actually deeply had was someone's going to find me. Like somebody's just going to come along and be like, you're a genius. We just want (laughs) to dump money on you, you know, Mm -hmm. which is a possibility out there in the world. But again, enchanting and gaining wisdom and actually starting to look at, okay, who are other people that are successful? When they get asked the question, did this happen because of luck or because of hard work? Almost all of them say that like you create your luck through hard work. Mm -hmm. And so, yes, I was learning my craft, but I wasn't putting myself out there. And I had totally bought into the starving artist. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, I heard that. The, that romanticized thing. It was awesome in some ways. I was living as the artist's artist. It was so cool, but it was just, nothing was coming out of it. Well, it sounds like it ran its course. Like you wouldn't give that back. And you're not going to do that into your 70s. No, no way, (laughs) no way. So then it's like, well, what do you want to do with this thing? You have skills. Mm -hmm. What do you want? Mm -hmm. And that, again, came from this practice of set a goal Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and set a huge goal. Mm -hmm. As you start to see things work, you're like, well, that actually worked, that thing that I was just standing for. So... If that worked, why not set the biggest possible goal? Yeah. Most people only achieve 60% of whatever they set a, set out to do. Yeah. So if you set it down here, you, you're barely even getting anything. If you set it up there, even if you got 60%, you're doing and achieving more than 90% of the world. Right. And so, you know, I have a huge goal. Yeah. Beautiful. Yeah. Do you want to share your goal? Yeah. <laughs> so my goal is by 2030 mm-hmm. or towards 2030 uh, to become the top sculptor in the United States who works in found materials mm-hmm. to create the most value possible for communities and future generations mm-hmm. to educate on where we land in the spectrum of consumption and waste mm-hmm. and the inherent and interconnectedness of all of our actions between each other Mm -hmm. and the planet. What that most value means Mm -hmm. is to 
have a noticeable positive impact on American culture around, again, our relationship to single-use plastic mm -hmm. or just the, our ways of thinking of designing things, mm -hmm. right? Because mm -hmm. there's so many better ways. And, you know, this really, I think, ties back into the bigger question of this podcast, right? Of right. like yes. the, the body and yes. the interconnectedness. Well, yeah, what is the cosmic body for you and your hopeful impact? Yeah, like I, I draw on my Buddhist practice where each one of us is the microcosm of the macrocosm of the universe. So every single thing that we see in society, even if we don't want to believe that the war in Ukraine has anything, how is that related to me? How am I responsible for that? Mm -hmm. Well, actually, what are the parts of myself that I have not looked at and examined that I still have to uncover that I, that I actually, this is showing me I actively need to go deeper into person-to-person uh, -person interaction mm -hmm. in all of our human relationships. Mm -hmm. Where is it that I go to that place Mm -hmm. that's still left in my mind mm -hmm. of we have nothing to say here screw you we're mm -hmm. done that on an interpersonal level mm -hmm. if you extrapolate that out to the size of two countries having a conversation mm -hmm. that is what war is mm -hmm. and so how can i make the changes in myself mm -hmm. to evolve past that mm -hmm. you know to to eliminate that mm -hmm. however you want to phrase it so then the the other beautiful part is that all of us are connected mm -hmm. and so as we make those changes within ourselves, we're able to help others to make those changes as well right. or to see why a certain path a certain cause leads to a certain effect. Yeah. And so as we make the change in ourselves, we actually have bigger muscles for for helping that to happen and as we help others, those ripple effects ripple out to the cosmic body as a whole, to yeah. society as a whole, to our planet, to our universe. Yeah. So that is how I understand it or yeah. I think of it um, and it it's that like it's that beautiful thing because it's so empowering at the same time that my actions as an individual actually do affect the whole I completely believe and know that to be true Each one of us is the microcosm of the macrocosm of the very universe. How might we each deepen our understanding of our own body as a contribution to the greater universal cosmic body? In our next episode, I sit down with Karen. Her life story as a child of Western civilization to an awakened soul passionate about the environment 
to one who now embraces our climate in collapse is a story about how each of us might embrace the wonder of the earth itself as the primary location of our truest individual selves. Can you find your soul within the earth body? Join us, won't you? This episode of Soul Forum has been brought to you by Storycatcher for iPhone, a fun and simple tool that helps you create shareable keepsake video stories. Be the documentarian in your circles. Find Storycatcher, spelt as all one word, on the Apple App Store. You may attend Soul Forum Live each Sunday morning at Creekside Commons in Lafayette, California. The 30-minute presentation is also live-streamed via YouTube and Facebook, where people interact via the chat. After the live stream is complete, for those gathering in person, we then enter into a non-recorded group discussion on the day's topic. We'd love for you to join us for Soul Forum.